Don't talk to me unless it's about this. I'm here today with another one of my favorite authors. Her name is Julia Phillips, and she wrote the novel Disappearing Earth. It was a New York Times top 10 book of the year in 2019 and a National Book Award finalist. She also teaches at the Randolph College MFA program and hosts online events for writers through her organization Lit Mixer. And we're going to talk about all of that today, as well as the book that she chose for us to read together, Middlemarch by George Eliot. So, Julia, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Caitlin. I wanted to start by asking you, what is something you're really into right now? Something I'm really into right now is, uh, well, I just watched all of Abbott Elementary last week, binged the whole thing and loved it. So I would say I'm really into that. I, I'm a little late to the game there and really enjoyed it. I think I've heard of the show. It's it's like a comedy in an elementary school. Yes, exactly. It's like a half hour comedy. You know, the kind of comedy where they talk to the camera. Um, oh, it's like yeah, like the office. Heart, yeah, exactly. Cute and heartwarming and funny and adorable and really highly recommend it. That's great. I love a good feel good show. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, let's start by talking about Disappearing Earth. First, I wanted to ask you to describe or how you describe this book to someone who hasn't read it yet. Yeah, well, I that's one of my favorite tasks. <laughs> uh, it's uh, hopefully a literary thriller. So it's a novel and it's about two girls who go missing in this remote Russian peninsula and how that affects the people around them. So the book starts with the disappearance. That's not a spoiler. And then it kind of spans out over the lives of the different women and girls in this community. And everyone is connected somehow to this crime. And in all their lives, we find um, information to figure out what exactly happened. And it has that element. I'm sure there's a term for this, uh, but I, th I think I, the first time I've seen this was in the movie Crash of where you have all these different stories and then somehow you see little threads that connect them all. Yeah, totally. I think of it. I, I always think of it as a novel and stories that kind of form when I read it in other people's. It's, it's always really fun. I think I've heard someone describe it as a polysonic novel too, which sounds very, very smart. <laughs> yes. What um, does that word even mean? <laughs> I, many voices, I guess. I, I don't know. I like uh, it. Okay, I, re okay. I repeat it without knowing really what it means. Um, and, but yeah, it, it's, you know, every chapter is from a different person's perspective and uh, they're all linked together by this, by this crime. Yes. And the setting, which I'm sure we'll get into Kamchatka, is, am I saying that correctly? You're saying that perfectly. I remember anyone who's listening should just pause and look up some Google images. I remember when I did that, I told my husband, he's been to Alaska. I have not. I was like, there's this place in Russia that's like Alaska, but on crack. <laughs> Alaska with fewer roads is, is the way I like to think of it. It's definitely, <laughs> definitely, um, yeah, definitely Bering Strait vibes. Very, very beautiful, very beautiful part of the world. Volcanoes and wildlife, bears. Just a, a beautiful, magical place in the world. I remember seeing the picture of the two mountains, the two, mm. you know, glacier mountains next to each other. And I live in Portland. And so we always see usually one mountain at a time. And I never see two just right next to each other like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. There's, uh, I think, like 300 volcanoes. Uh, I'm, I'm a little rusty, unfortunately, on my, on my Kamchatka volcano sacks. I should be up to date with them but they've got quite a few volcanoes there let alone the mountain ranges the, the glaciers that it's it's a it's a stunning part of the world 
So how did this book start in your mind? Where do you go back to when you think about the beginning of this book? And then what did that look like in the first few months of its inception? I always wanted to be a writer when I was growing up. Um, I wanted to be a novelist specifically. I loved to read, loved to write, wanted to tell stories. And I also was very interested in studying Russian language. Those, those two interests were not connected for, for a long time. So when I was in college, I studied abroad in Moscow. Studying Russian was like a, a long abiding interest of mine. But I really wanted to focus on creative writing and trying to figure out how to, how to tell a good story. And uh, this project was conceived to kind of tie those two interests together. So I thought I can set a novel in Russia and apply for a grant to go to Russia to research it. And that will allow me to kind of scratch all these itches at once. So I also Google imaged Kamchatka. I learned about Kamchatka. It was something that had been mentioned in my Russian classes before as this kind of distant and beautiful place, but I, I knew very little about it. Totally fell in love with it from a distance and, uh, and proposed this project, having never been there at the time. I was applying for a grant to go there. So I applied for that grant two years in a row. And when I finally got it, that's really when the project began in earnest. So the first few months of this project's conception was really um, months in anticipation of research. I was proposing this project. I was kind of, you know, talking out of my butt. (laughs) I didn't uh, know yet what I would find there. And I was trying to develop as many relationships as I could with people on the ground, so kind of connect with people to do Russian-English translations or interview folks from a distance about their experience or kind of learn as much as I could about, about the setting, which is really what sparked the project for me. That was in 2009 when I when it was first conceived, and I got the grant and was able to go to Kamchatka uh, to live for a while for the first time in 2011. So it was a long, a long project. And when you say you were proposing this project, is that related to the grant you were applying to? Yes, exactly right. So I was proposing, I was applying for a Fulbright grant, which I can't say enough good things about. Um, for if you're, you know, a writer, artist, creative, we apply to lots of things all the time that are really, really difficult to get. The Fulbright was relatively not difficult to get, which is a funny thing to say about something that took me two years to, you know, get off the wait list for. But um, I think my chances of getting it were one in four at the time I applied. And it, it really did change my life. It sent me to, it funded a year of research on this project. Um, it allowed me to move to Kamchatka. It, it was a major, major life-changing gift. So I evangelize for it all the time. Plus, then you get to go someplace and be, you know, an apparatus of the U.S. State Department, which really helps you make friends in uh, <laughs> in another culture. People really uh, warm up to that. <laughs> I'm picturing you just, like, wearing a badge around. <laughs> Basically. It was every conversation I had. People were like, so you are a spy? That yeah. Was no, not a very kind good of. one. <laughs> Only for art, only for literature. Exactly. Um, but it was it was uh, a really major. Uh, this project couldn't have happened without my getting that grant. It was like a major, major source of 
support and funding in those early stages when I didn't have alternatives sources for that support for funding. Do you remember where your interest in learning Russian language came from? I sure do. Uh, it's very embarrassing. I had a crush on a Russian American camp counselor when I was 12. And I just thought he was so cute and so interesting and so exciting. And he spoke Russian. And I was like, totally smitten. Uh, <laughs> I love this. I, yeah. It's, I, I mean, I, it's funny to me how much, I don't know if you had the same experience, but so many things that I was first introduced to around that age, kind of 12, 13, like eighth grade-ish, um, ended up being things that really formed my tastes forever. It was a very influenceable age, I think, for me. And, and like the movies I watched or the books I read or the music I listened to kind of sank in then in ways that shaped me forever. And, and that was a chance encounter that really shaped how things proceeded. Yes, that's amazing. I do know what you mean. I have, there's a band that I really started loving in middle school called Guster. Do you know yeah, that? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. Uh, I'm going, I finally got tickets to see them. Uh, they're coming to Portland. It'll be my first time actually seeing them in concert. And I recently had put out something in a newsletter about recommending a Guster song. And I had a friend respond. She's like, wow, I'm, you're still loyal after all these. You're so loyal. How could you not be? And then you're going to go to the concert. It's going to activate all of these feelings and memories. It's going to be so intense. Yes, yes. It's going to be so beautiful. (laughs) So when you think back on the experience of writing Disappearing Earth, or maybe since then, how do you feel like that experience changed you either as as a person and or as a writer? You know, this project, I, I came up with this project in 2009 and it was published in 2019. And that really, that was the period from when I was, uh, when I was 21 to 31. So it was a, a great portion of my life and uh, a highly changeable portion of my life. And I think writing the book working on the book was not possible. It's not possible to sort of extricate it or isolate it from the changes that were happening overall. I think working on the book helped me clarify for myself my ambitions and my values and the way, the things I believe about the world and people, relationships. But I think also the process of going through those those clarifications in my own life and coming to better understand them helped me work on the book too. And it was all sort of uh, mixed up together and linked. I think I, I grew up a lot while I was working on it. And I think it now stands as a kind of record for me of that period of growth. I, I can see in it the ideas I had when I started the project and the ideas that those grew into over time. Do you have an example of Something that started one way in the book and then became something else? The book is very much designed around the lives of girls and women uh, in this community. And it's not, uh, there's almost nothing in there given to, for example, the book centers around kidnapping, but there's no room in the book for the kidnapper really at all. It's just not there. It's not on the page. It's not the intention of the project. 
And it was interesting to me as I worked on it. I think when I started the project, I felt much more clear about the differentiation between a perpetrator and a victim, a perpetrator and a survivor. And I really wanted to give space only to the survivor or only to the victim. Uh, That was really important to me narratively. As I worked on the project and built out these characters and built out this world and lived in my own world a little bit more and and came to understand myself and and, uh, seeing more, exist more, um, I no longer feel so, so clear about those two categories or, or, or believe that those are two categories of people. I feel like all of us have in us the capacity for hurting other people and um, for being hurt by other people through no fault of our own. And that to me complicated the project of the book a lot. And it helped me, uh, I think, take this book as far as it could go in that direction and also helped push me forward on on future writing that I hope to do. Um, that kind of gets a little a little muckier maybe in some ways. This book's pretty mucky too. So it gets in the muck for sure. It's interesting I don't think I had thought about the fact as I was reading it that there isn't the perpetrator in it. It I mean it it fits so naturally and I love this, you know, thinking about the reason behind it of who's you know, the voice you're trying to, or the story you're trying to promote. And also I, I totally see what you mean about things do get more complicated. I think either with time or exposure of realizing, you know, there, people aren't good or bad only. Yeah. Yeah. And I think while I was working on this project, I think that there's, I don't think that he should be in this book. Um, he doesn't interest me very much as a character, but I don't think he's designed to be very interesting as a character. I think he's designed to be um, pretty bad, <laughs> pretty mm-hmm. pretty bad, pretty bad. Does really hurtful things to people, and uh, and that's an interesting characterization to fulfill and goal narratively to fulfill. And I think I got a lot out of it while I was working on it, and I also it also opens up questions of what else there is. You also mentioned that in this writing process, it helped you clarify your ambitions and values. What would you say at this point in in time those are for you? I think working on the book helped me. I started the book because project very much stemmed out of a goal of kind of depicting how, how I understood and how I still understand violence happens in our everyday lives that the that very rare uh, kind of headline grabbing event like uh, abduction of children by a stranger very very unusual uh, is kind of the, a visible tip of the iceberg in terms of the way that we uh, hurt each other and are hurt in our lives and that the such an event is built on a, a really robust foundation of how we interact with each other socially and and, um, who we hurt and who we encourage each other to hurt. Um, 
who we slight, who we marginalize, like who we um, indicate and reinforce, like this person is acceptable to treat badly or to disregard or to um, injure. And this person is not. And I wanted to write this book in this particular form to explore that, to like, to look at the foundation, kind of the structural violence behind an event like this kidnapping, this fictional kidnapping. As I worked on it, I came to understand that what I believed was not only that that's how violence operates, but I also had a belief about how that structure can be broken or changed. And that, that we, if we all act together in concert to hurt each other, we also all act together in concert to help each other. And, and we do that also foundationally, structurally, by, by actively working against those kind of lessons we're taught about how to um, do harm, that, that we like see the people or listen to people or um, recognize what we have been taught to refuse to see and that we um, kind of dismantle those hierarchies that create so much violence and reinforce so much violence. Um, are reinforced by violence. And working on the book helped me understand that value, understand the value of, for me, the core value of, of community, community as a method of healing, like coming together, talking to people, listening to people. It is, uh, I don't think it's a, a spoiler to say, it's a major part of the plot. And in writing that story, in the book helped me understand that value in my own life. This is Sonia Kamal, author of the novel Unmarriageable. I absolutely love Julia Phillips's novel, Disappearing Earth. It is a beautiful, memorable meditation on community, loss, belonging, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a friend. The prose just shimmers. It's literally, it can transport you to Kamjatka, the frozen landscape, the settings, the way people connect. And it's a mystery and a thriller. What can be better than that? One thing I loved about Disappearing Earth is in the opening, you have a map as well as the perspective and the globe of the Kamachatka Peninsula. And I think for the cast of characters, that list, which I referred to it often, uh, was so helpful. Um, for me to build the community in my mind that was in the book. My greatest takeaway from the book, I think, is just the idea of listening to each other, that everyone has a story. And it seems so often that some of the women um, characters and children, vulnerable people aren't listened to. People tend to ignore, they tend to discount the stories, and they aren't seen. It's as if sometimes people can be invisible. And this book, in such a quiet way, I mean, it, it tells a dramatic story, but it's quietly done. I love the book, and I'm so excited to read anything that Julia Phillips writes. Let's talk about Lit Mixer. Will you tell us what Lit Mixer is? Yeah, it's it's a brand new endeavor that I'm really excited about. 
And it's basically an extended Q&A with an author. So it's, it's one hour once a month where you're in a very small group. Um, you, it's like capped at 20 people. And you just have a conversation with an author that's kind of a role model. We talk for half an hour about craft and half an hour about career. So basically like half an hour about writing and half an hour about publishing and ask our questions. And then the person answers them. It's really fun. It's, it's designed to kind of be, there's a lot about both writing and publishing that are quite opaque and kind of shrouded in mystery sometimes or, or hard to figure out. And it can sometimes feel like a, especially hard to figure out, hard to kind of bridge the divide between someone who wants to publish a book and someone who has published a book. That, that is um, a divide I've felt very keenly in my life and, you know, I continue to feel now at every stage, right? Like between someone who's published one book and someone who's published two books or four books, it all feels like there are these gaps that are hard to bridge. And so that this project is designed to bridge them a little bit so we can all get in the same room and, and talk about it, Let's figure out what's going on. Do you have any takeaways or fun things that have come up so far in the conversations that have stuck out to you in your memory? Well, it's so new that we've only had one so far. We had a, our, first, our inaugural event with Nira Jacob, who's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writer and cultural critic and teacher artist. She is the author of a novel called The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing and a memoir called Good Talk. And she is just, I mean, I'm really obsessed with Mira. I, I just think she's the most brilliant, captivating, honest, insightful speaker there is. You know, we had folks like weeps because they were so moved because she was so brilliant. It was, it was, couldn't have been a better first event. But she really spoke about how important it was for her to be her own champion, that she felt that there was not an industry, there was not a place in the industry for her. And she was not encouraged necessarily to do what she was doing, but she believed that what she was doing was uh, important and mattered. She just fought for her own vision of her own art. And if she hadn't fought for her own art, then nobody else would have. No one else would have ever seen it or, or believed in it. That really will stick with me forever, hearing her talk about that. It just how important it is to believe in yourself and, and what you have to say. No one else can say what you have to say. So, so how crucial it is to say it. I saw you write on Twitter recently that you committed to writing 250 words a day to get down a first draft of a new novel. And I'm curious if that's a very different way than you wrote Disappearing Earth. I want to hear more about that project just as a whole. <laughs> oh, I'm really excited about it. It's a very different way than I wrote Disappearing Earth. You know, I, the first draft of Disappearing Earth was so long ago now that I actually... I think I kind of fuzzied over it in memory and I'm like, oh, it was a very easy and smooth writing process. I'm sure it was torturous and difficult, <laughs> but it was also quite different because the structure of Disappearing Earth, um, it's one story made out of a bunch of mini stories. So I was, I was working on each chapter. I was in this process with Disappearing Earth where I would write one chapter 
then revise that chapter, then send it to my peer workshop, my friends to read, and then get feedback and then revise it again. So I would kind of go through three rounds on each chapter before I would set it down. And, and that process would take maybe like a month or two months for each chapter. That felt very, in my memory, that, that felt like a, a good and smooth rhythm for that project, but it was particular to the structure of that project. This project I'm working on now is um, way more linear. It's one character's story all the way through. And it is really different in scope. And I've really wanted to, I know, you know, the pandemic has been really disruptive for all of us. I also had my first kid in June, 2020, and that was really disruptive uh, in, in ways that were both uncomplicatedly good and complicatedly you know, complicated. <laughs> so uh, it was, I kind of had to, as with every project, like learn how to write this particular project, but also it felt like learn again how to write at all. And um, setting that words goal for myself ended up being just the, the biggest possible gift. Writing 250 words mm -hmm. is extremely doable. Um, it is at least for me, everyone's different, but it's like half a page of writing. It's a couple of paragraphs and it, you could in a first draft, I mean, you, you could like do it in 10 minutes. It's, it's quite straightforward. Are, is what you produce in 10 minutes going to be good? Does it matter? <laughs> I mean, like all that matters <laughs> is that you get the words out. So, uh, that was a really helpful thing for me to set the goal to, to just get in the rhythm of I'm doing this every day and uh, I'm focusing on just, you know, checking off this item on my to-do list and, and letting go of the anxiety of quality, mm -hmm. which is really fun. And I think quite necessary for me in this moment, you know, first drafts. That's how, for me, that's what first drafts are. You're letting go of the anxiety of quality. Well, I loved I was struck by the fact that it was 250 words because I thought, oh, that does seem like a low number for a professional Solo. writer. And I think it's great to see examples of different ways a book comes together and to be reminded that it doesn't always have to be. It's, it's great to have really attainable goals. And I'm actually, I would like to write a novel and I'm tomorrow I'm starting. It's starting with I'm, I'm going to wear the same dress for 100 days. Love. <laughs> Love. and only um, while you're writing or all, all the time every day all the time Love. and uh it started as a, my husband actually has an apparel company and they do this thing where people wear a dress for 100 days and I was like I should do it this is like you oh, know yes. your clothing and then I had the idea I was like I want to combine this with my writing and I want to my goal right now is to quote like touch the novel every day yes. and yes. so that could be you know, my hope is like at least five minutes, maybe some days it's just one minute of reading something, writing something, taking notes. And so seeing your 250 words a day really helped me of, you know, make it as manageable as you can, because that's the way you'll actually do it. Yes. Yeah. I think setting that minimum goal is so important because then if you do it, then everything else is kind of gravy. And it seems like it's not very much, but then it accumulates so quickly. Have you read? Ingrid Rojas Contreras wrote a fantastic it's also a novelist and memoirist like Mira Jacob. She wrote a fantastic article for the New York Times about self-mesmerization 
where she talked no. about oh it's so so good you gotta look it up it's she talks about wearing a certain color and i was just thinking about the ritual of wearing the same dress for 100 days but also of uh, she talks about like wearing a certain color putting on certain music and kind of giving herself these these almost pavlovian triggers to get into her writing so she kind of sets up a certain environment with clothing and with and then she locks into her writing which is so cool very cool okay i will look that up and i'll put it in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it we are i mean such creatures of habit it i think it's so easy to think we're not but (laughs) i think we're like you said pavlovian like think of dog training um i think that that stuff is powerful I have a friend who talks about when you are out of the project, it takes a blood sacrifice to get back in. Um, you know, you kind of break the habit and then reestablishing it is so, so difficult. I, I think establishing the habit, touching, touching the manuscript all the time is just the best possible thing you can do for yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for your next 100 days. Thank you. Thank you. Do you, do you take, I'm sure there's periods where you do have to take a break from the manuscript. And so for you, was that after you have the first draft down, do you automatically take a break of a certain time or do you just go right right into going to the beginning of it and revising? I don't know. It's a good question. And the manuscript I'm working on now is the, is the fourth novel manuscript I've worked on for what I hope will be the second published book. And one would think that that is enough manuscript time to establish one's habits i don't know it it seems so project specific and also time in my life specific with this particular one i finished the first draft so much energy i launched right into revisions and the revisions were thrilling then i very happily got pregnant again so i'm expecting our second now and i find the beginning of pregnancy to in no uncertain terms suck um, <laughs> I find, I find the latter half of pregnancy to be very fun and energizing, but the first half is for me, not energizing at all. So it has been a, uh, a break, not of writing ritual, but of circumstance. I just have been like sleeping and gagging <laughs> and that has created a break in the manuscript. And it's hard, you know, right? Like talk about getting in the habit, getting out of the habit, I don't, some part of me feels like, oh, it serves the, the work best to always be in it. But we can't always be in it. And it, it just doesn't happen. And I do think, um, thankfully, like many things, art kind of ripens with time uh, and does not rot, actually. It, it just gets better and better the more space and time we give it to, uh, to grow. So I, I am hopeful that this period off will eventually um, be sort of synthesized as, as something that was important and necessary for the project, and certainly for me. I have a, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and that was exactly how I described pregnancy also. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if you have the same experience, but I have friends who, like, got pregnant, and they were like, all right, nine months, I'm going to finish my manuscript list. They, like, they, like, blasted off, and they were, they were writing all the time, and I had these fantasies before the first time I got pregnant. I was like, this is going to be so productive. No, it has not been the case in my experience. I don't know what you're... Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't know that many people who had 
you know, had been pregnant before, but I was blown away by I did nothing for two months and nothing. I just was a vegetable. And it's <laughs> I don't my, know poor, how my poor email how I inbox. Existed. I know it's awful. It's really awful. It's it's really um, yeah. That I, I hope you for. are close to getting out of that phase. I hope so too. Officially second <laughs> trimester now, so I hope so too. And and certainly my 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 email inbox has has greatly suffered for it. Well, why don't we transition to talking about Middle March? Yay! Why tell me first how you chose Middle March as the book for us to talk about? I asked you for a book that's you know somehow meaningful to you in your life. I just think it's my favorite. I, I, there are so many good books in the world, um, but in the past couple of years, this has been my favorite one. I, I just think it is uh, really magnificent, a masterpiece, and there's always a good reason to reread it. So this was a, another good reason to reread it. What makes it your favorite? I think it's it's quite extraordinarily. Have you read it before this? No. <gasps> oh, okay. I'm so interested because I would say. In my experience, it's a love-hate book. I don't know if you you loved or hated. I had a very hard time with it. Okay, <laughs> I have to yeah. be honest. Yes, we. <laughs> and it we, wasn't out of hatred. Just like people that you know, they're not good or bad. I always like to clarify when I say I had a hard time with the book. Like it wasn't a bad book. I just didn't get something that other people get from it. And so I'm very excited to hear about all the things you get from it. And what I did, it's so funny because I feel like a little like middle schooler who should be in trouble telling you this is that I, while I was reading it, I also read the spark notes. Smart. I think that's so smart. <laughs> because then I could understand what was happening and like half the background. And that helped me like the parts of the story I love. I love the idea of just everyday life, everyday people. So yeah, so I'm excited to hear more about your love for Middle March and why, you know, it's such a huge name book, huge literary classic. And so I'm curious to hear why you think it's become the big name it has. Oh gosh, that's a good question. That's that seems like a literary history question. I don't I don't know that. I, I want to say if you are bad and got called into the principal's office, I also did because I was intimidated. I think I've read this book six times. There's lots of things I don't understand in it. And I also Wikipedia it before our call because I was like, oh God. You know, what if, <laughs> and when I Wikipedia it, it talked, it said it focuses on these four major plot lines. I realized I only ever pay attention to three of them. I never pay attention to the fourth. You know, I, I, we all get different things from the text and probably not uh, what Elliot intended, as, as is the case with every author in every book. Hi, my name is Madeline and I live in Groningen in the Netherlands. So I think Middlemarch is considered a literary classic because Eliot just does such a wonderful job of exposing the emotions and the daily lives of these characters. So even if they're living in the 1800s, we can still connect with these characters. We still empathize with what they're going through and can understand their emotions. And that just stands the test of time. To anyone considering reading Middlemarch, I would recommend taking your time with it. I know it's an intimidating book with how long it is, but in the end, it's so worth it. So highly recommend checking it out. 
and just start with two or three chapters a day if you find it a little overwhelming. Um, it definitely helps you to enjoy it more and immerse yourself. And especially if you love the Bronte sisters or Austin, then I think you're really going to love Middle March by George Eliot. Hi, my name is Laura and I live in Edinburgh in Scotland. For me, the greatest takeaway that I had after reading this book was that ordinary people's lives are really important. And within small everyday actions and the everyday way that you live, you can achieve little greatnesses. So I think not underestimating the ordinary or not underestimating how important just everyday, normal, ordinary life is, is something that really stuck with me from the book. And I think it's a classic for exactly that reason. It just looks at different cross-sections of society. And although the book was set hundreds of years ago or a couple of hundred years ago, everyday people have the same concerns now as they do then. Family, love, money, politics, all of that kind of thing. So I think that's what makes it a classic. It's a snippet of life. And although some of the material circumstances are different and old fashioned, the underlying great themes are the same. I have some, you know, questions about the book. Uh, we can start with those. Or do you have something you want to jump into about the book first? Well, OK, I'm trying to think of why I because it was funny. It was I'm in a book club and one of the book club members picked Middle March and everyone lost it I, they, I think they refused to meet there was like an anarchy in the <laughs> mutiny in the group and they said this book has to be stopped uh, we cannot meet to discuss it um so i'm thinking about why i love it so much i i find the quality of observation and kind of like the psychological understanding that Elliot has in writing about these characters to be totally beyond I think anything I've ever read. She really understands all of her characters and seems to understand them wholly and is quite tender with them. It's not just one or two main characters that are beautifully evoked and everyone else kind of left to the side. She really understands everybody and she sets in motion these these subtle, subtle decisions that they make or assumptions that they have or that then snowball to kind of determine their fate. Like, will they, will they be happy or not? Will they um, realize their dreams or not? And, and I think that makes me so invested as a reader. It matters so much to me what happens to these people. Um, I find it kind of gutting and deeply moving and extraordinarily beautiful and, and a quite impossible to fathom accomplishment to to build a world that's so robust. That's why I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> well, and I read, you know, speaking of building a world that's so robust, is she wrote this in pieces, right? Yeah, I guess as two different, this is, I mean, you tell me, I'm also getting this off the Wikipedia entry I read. So I, I hadn't realized that she wrote it as sort of two different books and then put them together, which makes sense. 
I also didn't know. I assumed George Elliott was a man and totally. then learned that no, it was really Mary Ann Evans and that was her pen name. And so, you know, super interesting reading about her experience being an author in this is the 1870s and, and, and then the book is set in the 1830s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the way she well, writes about womanhood in that particular time period is really um, engaging to me. You know, the kind of constraints that society has or expectations that society has and how it affects the way that people see themselves and, and what functions they think they serve and kind of how it shapes their identities, their personal identities really, really sharply drawn and uh, extraordinary. I was struck by the way that it kind of like you can only dream as far as you can see. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you'd hear certain characters, their dream was to put together a nice house. And I would look down on that like, oh, that's that's the biggest dream she has is decorating her living room. And, you know, first of all, who am I to judge? The, val the validity of someone's dream. I have a lot of um, dreams about decorating my living room. So go on. <laughs> I'm like, no judgment yeah. here. And, and also, you know, this person, this woman's dreams was probably based on the options she saw available. Yeah. And how that's just kind of a, stands the test of time. Today, you know, if someone reads about our lives in 200 years, they'll be like, oh, this was the biggest they dreamed about. Yeah. They wanted to have this many followers on Instagram. That's it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And it, and I think, I think she very tenderly, like lovingly, she, she kind of gives honors to those dreams uh, as limited as they, and you can tell, you know, that she thinks they're kind of, uh, she definitely thinks that some things are superficial or some things are petty when she, but she also, I think shows really well that like the dream of wifehood or of like being the mistress of your own home that that is sort of the, the greatest degree of independence that you will ever have, that you can ever have in your life, in this particular society, in this particular um, role that you play or, or occupy. And so it's a, it's a kind of dependent independence, but it's, it's all the freedom that you'll ever get is getting to decide how many handkerchiefs you have. And that really matters. The freedom really matters, even if the handkerchiefs feel silly in a way that the, the, the freedom to decide means everything decide within the limitations that you're given or to to influence if you can't directly yes to influence make decisions to influence what the men in your world are doing yeah yeah and i think she she does a good job at you know if for folks who haven't read i don't want to get too in the weeds of this but um i find dorothea the the character of dorothea to be like deeply moving and tragic. And she does such a good job at setting up Dorothea's folly from the very start, this main character, and how badly she wants to do things. And she has no ability to do things because she's so curtailed by societal expectations. Like there's no, there's no way that she can do anything. So the only way that she can do something is to influence other people who can do things. She can just say, like, I have this idea. I think this is a good idea. And sometimes people listen to her. So, she, so what she's dying for is someone to listen to her. And I think Elliot does a, such a wonderful job of showing the, the tragedy and the loss of just the expectation that her husband will listen to her. And then the, the devastation of finding out he doesn't. He doesn't 
interested in what she has to say. And that is it. That's their whole hope of her life has been to find someone that will be interested in what she has to say and allow her to have that, that influence to do something that matters. Oh, oh. I was, I was very struck by how, I guess, quickly her story turned tragic of, you know, it opens with, she's supposed to be set up with this one man and he's, you know, like, seems like a oh, bad traditional husband. Yeah. Um, and she finds this like enlightened oh. uh, partner who she sees as so smart and loves her wit. And, and then I was very struck. I was like, oh my God, no, he didn't turn out to be who she thought he was. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it showed me for her, for Dorothea, I first saw her as this very strong, smart, independent woman. And, and yet even, Despite that, we all like fall prey to idolizing people. Oh my God. Kind of, you know, yeah. when you have a crush, you just see what you want to see. You just see what you so... want to see. And she's so naive, too. Yeah. I mean, it, she's so, the world is really small, really, really small. She, no one really has enough information to go on. Yeah, it does. And it does make you think a lot about marriage. To me, it's very much a marriage book or, or a relationship book. Um, it makes you think about the kind of ideas you have about a person when you are first falling in love with them and then what it is like to live with that person and how much you learn over time and how much you're kind of disabused of notions you've had that were false and, and how you come to see them for who they are and how sometimes your, your well-being, like the degree to which you like yourself, really affects the degree to which you like your partner. Because you see yourself reflected in them. Dorothea's husband is, I think, a really good example of someone who doesn't like himself very much. So he doesn't like her either, the more time they spend together. I don't think I would have pinpointed it like that, but you're right. Oh, he's such, everyone, it's so, such tragedies. And there were so many, I think I, what I really love in books is this uh, exploration of human miscommunication. Yes. And all the all the things that people assume but don't say or they are just waiting for I'm waiting for this person to tell me they want me to stay with them yes. but I'm not going to ask them directly yes. like you said it's it's a book about marriage and relationships and that's I think that's the place where you see this play out the most is people assuming oh we have the same idea of what a happy relationship mm -hmm. looks like and it's funny cuz it makes me almost think that nowadays it's like you know back then that was something to talk about. Like, do you want a docile wife or do you want a wife that's a little more involved? But now that'd be like totally taboo yeah. to, to say that kind of thing. Like, at, least, at least in our circles, yeah, to, totally. Everyone's supposed to just, you know, there's kind of this like ideal uh, out there of these egalitarian relationships. And I think that prevents people from saying what they're really looking for and realizing that, you know, a relationship can be egalitarian and, and healthy take on many different forms. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think to me, one of the big takeaways of this book, one of the big arguments of this book is that the partnership you pursue or choose is really uh, integral into sort of making you the best of yourself or making you the worst of yourself. It kind of determines the path that you are on. The way that you build your partnership becomes the way that you build your own your own life. And I think it really argues for like 
bad decisions at the outset and then poor communication over time and that sort of like the the building of values in the home that don't correspond with what you need or what you want um really do great damage to to the individual and i think i think it's really beautiful how she has these examples of people who through their partnership are kind of ascend to uh, their greatest self-realization and who through their partnership like, descend to great disappointment um or i also really like that i know you're talking about you know communication sometimes i get frustrated in tv especially when i think you know like just talk to each other just talk to each other you know there's some miscommunication that i think like can't you just say i didn't understand i got it wrong i I thought this, and then the other person would say, oh, I thought this, and you just talk about it. And I think TV, you know, it goes by so quickly. Like, it can't explain to us exactly. It needs us to sort of assume or, un- or just understand why these moments are happening. I, I really like how in this book in particular, she sets up her character so well that I never question why they're not talking to each other in these moments. Their relationships are... She really lays down, like, this is how they normally communicate. These are the things that go said. These are the things that are unsaid. And so there are moments of miscommunication where they could not possibly communicate. They've been living in different worlds for so long that, that they couldn't say to, they couldn't make each other understood to each other, which is really uh, enjoyable, I guess, to read. Impressive. How do you think... As a writer, she does that, how she makes you understand the characters so well. I think she's just, she strikes me as a very perceptive person. That she is a, it seems to me that, that she just writes it the way that she sees it. I understand I'm probably um, not giving her enough credit for her craft here. But as like, as fine and elevated and now archaic as the language is, she does seem to me to just be saying, what she thinks all the time. That that at least is the kind of tone that that strikes me. And and she just is very perceptive, I think. You know, Tolstoy is like the best too. I, I, that's a funny thing to say, but I, I, Tolstoy also, I think, it is it's just a pays a lot of attention to people, a lot of different people, and then tries to put all that down on the page. Um, what a comparison, but. Uh, well, forgive me, the Russian, <laughs> the Russian, <laughs> lit. Um, and it's just uh, quite, I think some people just are very attentive to others and, and reflective on, on why people do the way, the things that they do, uh, have a lot of tenderness. Yeah. I mean, well, how do you think, I mean, that's... how do you think she does? Did it strike you as very perceptive or? I think I see it similar to you in that. It almost was like the narrator, the narrating voice said a lot. Like you said, it, the narrating voice kind of inserted itself uh-huh, uh-huh. of she was usually the kind of person who did this right. or she was thinking this or feeling this. And so I think those added details built it up. And I think also just the, like the length of the novel allowed for this stuff yeah. to come out yeah. in depth. Yeah, there's a lot of room and there's a lot of, um, she's not worried about explaining. She, she goes ahead and, and explains. It's really nice. It's also really, I think, it's, it's a pleasure to read a really well done omniscient narrator. Uh, 
where you have a narrator who just knows everything that everyone's thinking. And so you have a dialogue that is related and then you have what one person's intentions were when they said the thing and then how the other person heard it. it it's very rich and fulfilling to kind of get this insider view, you know, to, to kind of get to be a god of the situation and hear everything that everyone is thinking in addition to everything everyone is saying, know all their backgrounds. Um, it's really fun. That books can do that. And, and I think few other forms can do it so, so beautifully. Yes, because as a reader, you're so curious. And so you yeah. get all the information you want. It's funny, I'm reading another book right now that has the same omniscient narrator. And I've realized that most books I read don't. They're yeah, I think it's very out of fashion now. And so when it first started, I was confused. I was like, wait, I thought we were in this guy's head yes. and now we're over here. And I'm like, oh, I know everything. <laughs> it's so, it's such a pleasure. It's such a, I mean, it's, it is confusing when it's not well done, but then when it's well done, it's just the best. I think it's definitely, I think both that omniscient voice and the, um, like the judgmental narrator also, it's funny to say, cause I was, I just talking about how non-judgmental she is, but she does, you know, she like says, this person is unkind or this person is, you know, conceited or, and then goes like cast judgment and has a sense of humor about different people. And I think that also is out of fashion to have a narrator who uh, has their own voice uh, or at least it's, it's less common and really fun. Hello everyone. It's Caitlin. I wanted to first say a sincere thank you for listening and also invite you to join our Patreon community. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and ideas to be on the show, for you to join a community that will help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whatever those may be, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter where we share little snippets of what's going on on Patreon or go right ahead and join the community right now. All the links are in the show notes. Well, hearing you talk about this, yeah, these things that kind of go in and out of style, yeah. like writing styles, that made me think of something else in the book. I was I was just struck by this, the ever-evolving forms of social status. You know, at this time that this book was written, and the time it's telling about in the 1830s, clean money came from, you know, things that you inherited and it was dirty to work for money. And now it's totally the opposite. And I really appreciate when things are held up to me like, oh, yeah, it's all just an illusion. Yeah. Like we think these things are real in fact, but all this stuff is made up by like, I don't really know who, <laughs> but it's it's all made up. And I'm wondering if if you saw similar things in the book that show just the illusion of cultural norms that are present at different times. Yeah. Well, it's so funny too, because I think she does such a good job in this book of also showing how people's cultural norms shift depending on where they are in the culture. So the folks who inherit their money are like, it's the best possible thing to do to inherit your money, which I think we probably still have now, you know, this, this sense of like, old money or uh, like being connected to, I don't know, being an heiress or something, you know, like that. I'm sure if you are in a circle of heiresses, that is very 
impressive or very like important. That's true. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, Mary's father that the who is really into business and really into they they are so um disappointed in Fred that when they think he's going to inherit his wealth it, it seems so sort of like lazy and idle to do to not have a, a real profession or a real career or not to or um the concern that Dorothea has about about Ladislaw is is all very like well you don't have a real job <laughs> so um, <laughs> it it is it's interesting to think about depending on the on the uh, on the rung you're at in this highly classed society how folks look at money or look at status or prestige and which i think in some way shifts and in some way holds true very very much to the present day i think one thing that always really startles me in reading these books during this summer, I was taking a break from my manuscript. I was also watching quite a few, you know, kind of Jane Austen, BBC adaptations, uh, really comfort food, happiness. Uh, it's just how much time the upper classes have in particular. I'm really interested in that. And, and I don't think that that kind of like, I don't think that that is, I think our class striations are different now. So I think the kind of way that the aristocracy or like moneyed landowner class existed then in the UK, it doesn't seem analogous to how the wealthy, or I guess it, I don't know if it's analogous to the wealthy now in the US or the ultra wealthy or not analogous at all, but it's just really, really interesting to me how, um, how like idle a lot of the characters are that that one of Dorothea's tragedies, for example, is that she's very bored. She she goes on a lot of walks and she's like totally bored out of her skull. She doesn't have anything to do. And I think we live in a world of so much uh, distraction and activity and uh, pressure in different ways than what I recognize on the page here. That 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 aspect of it is always quite surprising and startling to me. Those two extremes yeah. of how life could be very idle or could be overly full. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure if I knew more about, you know, 19th century activity, I would have a whole different um, view on it. But the, but the presentation of it in these stories, in these novels, um, always, always strikes me with how, I don't know, people are like sitting, sitting in their homes and then someone comes over and says oh here you are i'm glad i found you and they say oh i've been sitting here for days <laughs> just like of course you found me yeah, well, I, mean. I think what <laughs> but maybe that's just maybe that's just a function of the storytelling and and is not in fact how things were it really surprises me every time it does i mean i am yeah also not a historical expert of this time period but like you said any jane austen era movies you do get the sense that there was a lot of free time. And, you know, nowadays we talk about how we need more space in our lives and more free time. And it is also helpful to see you can go too far in either direction. Because it does seem, it seems like, like you said, for Dorothea, like she didn't like having all this time <laughs> and space. No, it's actively what she does not want. But I don't know if that is, maybe that's something that still exists now in a sphere that I don't 
see or or I'm not familiar with. I don't know. Maybe I'm not recognizing it in right. my own life. Well, I would I would wonder the same thing of um and you know, okay, Dorothea, was she part of the one percent? Was she right. part of the the ten percent, the point one percent? Um and if you take that same sliver of today's population, like you said, what is happening yeah. with those people? Like time? is the is she part of the top 20% and is the top 20% the same as the top 20% now or is the top 20% then the same as the top 0.2% I'm not clear on it at all I'm interested in it this is uh, this is we'll yeah. send us to more Wikipedia and spark note immediately afterwards <laughs> maybe there's like um fan fiction of modern day middle march <laughs> oh my god there must be I have read a lot of a lot of pride and prejudice contemporary adaptations so i would love to read a, a modern day middle march yes we're gonna have to go look yes. Eight thousand pages and just yeah <laughs> dense with observations i would love it i would love it yeah i did as i when i went to a, a used bookstore and so the copy i bought it's like i don't know if you oh can tell God. obviously people listening can't see the screen but like the book is the size of my hand and i have pretty small hands and so it's like so thick yeah <laughs> So it looks even larger than I know it really is if it was like a normal size. That's book. the kind of book you like break in three pieces and then uh, bring it, bring a third of it in your purse with you on the subway. With you. Is there anything else you want to share about Middlemarch, about anything else that we talked about today? No, I just want to thank you for, for reading this book with me. I know it is, um, it's not the, it's a daunting read, I think, to go to the bookstore and pick up that book that I'm imagining, you know, is, is many hundreds of pages. And I think it was very patient and very generous of you to, to spend the time to do it. So I really appreciate it. Well, I would say the same back to you. I appreciate your, your generosity and, and patience and doing this with me. This has been so fun to get to know you both, you know, learning more about you and also learning about you through talking about Middlemarch. So Thank you so much. Oh, we have to go watch them. Um, I, I, I hear there's a good 1994 BBC version. So that, that's the next task for me, certainly. Oh, okay. There's a movie. I guess I get, or a series. I'm sure a series in like, a series. In like 400 okay. parts, but uh, yeah. uh, I'm <laughs> off to watch it. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Caitlin. Awesome. Thank you, Julia. My name is Jennifer Kingsley, and I live in Ottawa, Canada. The greatest takeaway from Disappearing Earth for me is the landscape. That's what I think of again and again when I think back to this story is, is the place and the incredible sense of place that's told from multiple perspectives. It's the multiple perspectives that I really appreciate about this story and that I love to see in literature because it demonstrates that our world is never one world. It's everybody has their own version. We each have our own version of the world. and. We each have our own experience of every event and every story. Eastern Russia is a place that I have spent some time, and so that certainly resonated for me. But I don't think that that's at all needed to really enjoy Disappearing Earth. Hi, I'm Sandy Marks, and I live in New York City, and I absolutely love this book. It is just there's so many multi-layered characters, and I just didn't want to leave Alonia, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name right, and Sophia. And it was so clear to me from the start that in spite of their youth and innocence, they were highly intelligent and resourceful and heroic, as were so many women in Disappearing Earth. Yet, 
as is true pretty much in every corner of the world, as we all know, women, no matter how accomplished and intelligent, are so often dismissed and not heard, which is such a frustration, but it made the story so painfully beautiful. I really wish there were more books that hooked me from the very first page like this one did. I just felt myself transported into their world in this remote Kachatka. And I love reading books about places and settings that I've never experienced. Think of it like a good wine. Sip it. Enjoy it. Don't guzzle it like a beer. Spend all the time you have because it is an absolute treat to get lost in this little town with these wonderful sisters and all the characters that come with it. This is a podcast, but it's also like more than a podcast. Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About This is a place for people in love and obsessed with storytelling to share in our admiration of books, music, comedy, and other forms of story, and to fuel our own creativity. So we have a Patreon community that you can try out for free. It's a place to continue these conversations off air, to submit your own thoughts and topic ideas to be shared on the show, join a community to help you prioritize fun and enjoyment in your own creative endeavors, whether those are hobbies or professionally, and for us to come together for in-person events. You can see what the community is all about for free by signing up for our newsletter, where we'll share little teasers of what's going on in Patreon, or you can go right ahead and join the Patreon right now. All the links are in the show notes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show, so please tell us by leaving a review emailing us or sending a message on Instagram.